Well, good morning. I hope you had a wonderful uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, it is uh, what a privilege we have to be a, a thankful people. Uh, the world needs it, uh, not just one day, right, but all throughout the year. And uh, they have the opportunity to be able to receive it by really seeing believers in their love for the Lord. We are the people of thanks. A.W. Tozer put life into its right perspective when he said this, When the mists have cleared away and all things appear in their proper light, I think it will be revealed that goodness and greatness are synonymous. I do not see how it could be, it could be otherwise in a moral world. Goodness and greatness. The world is in desperate need of seeing goodness. C.S. Lewis was a little more to the point. No man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. So true, right? Everyone wants the good life, but very few are living it. And even fewer know how. This morning for you, I'd like to set our goal which is actually set for us by the Holy Spirit. And it is to learn how to live the good life. Probably should have saved this one for New Year's, right? But the Lord has set our text. We're just going verse by verse. And that really is the theme. That's why up there it's titled The Good Life. That's going to be our theme for the next three weeks. So let's see that theme unfold. If you will, make sure your Bibles are open to 1 Peter. It's all the way to the right in your Bibles. And I'd like to read that section where we're going to find this theme from 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. Allow me to read this aloud. To sum up, All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's going to be the text that we are going to settle in for these next three weeks, and then we'll kind of turn a Christmas corner. Now, I think the key to this new section that we're going to study is verse 10. So look at verse 10 one more time. 
And it is a quote actually from Psalm 34. But listen to what I believe to be the key theme text for this whole section. The one who desires life to love and see good days. Peter wants to talk about a person who's passionate about life. I like that. I don't know if it's because I kind of, you know, I mean, I, I kind of, I grew up in a Hispanic home. I've got Hispanic, a little bit of Sicilian blood you know, flowing through me. I don't know if that's why I'm so drawn to, you know, passionate type things and, and kind of direction being passionate about life, but that resonates a chord with me. And Peter wants to talk about a person who's passionate about life, who who has a love to do good. Or you could say, as we've said here at the top of the notes here, a love for the good life. I think sometimes we have the wrong impression, the wrong, uh, we've, we've understood the wrong message about what it is to not only be a Christian, but live the Christian life. We sometimes think of it as, you know, kind of like the guy that said, oh, well, there goes uh, a Christian. So how do you know? Well, because he looks like a donkey. His face is so long, you know. We sometimes think that that's Christian living. We're so serious about life and, you know, kind of have to have such a long face and, you know, act like we're, you know, quote, humble. Well, the Lord does want us to be humble, but it doesn't mean we need to go around looking like we're morose, you know, like we're just, who died, right, you know? To live and love the good life, we've been born again for it. Unfortunately, so many Christians are living way below that. For so many, they cannot say, that they are living the good life. Sometimes you hear people respond when you ask them how it's going and they say this, oh, you know, just living the dream. You ever heard people say that? Just living the dream, man. I never believe them. I never believe them. Whenever I hear a person say that, I just think, you're trying to make me think that you're living that way. I don't think you are. But here Peter says, as a believer, we should desire the good life. This should stop us right here and go, yeah, that's what I want. I want the good life. So what is the good life? Listen, don't be confused and don't be duped by the, those that, you know, kind of will, you know, you see the commercials, you open up the can of whatever, the good life. No, not at all. Not at all. Peter is going to here tell us about what the good life is. I mean, you ask many today or you pay attention to commercials and all of them will tell you something like this. Well, it's becoming financially independent or secure. 
or, uh, you know, it's chasing after your dream, or it's some all-consuming, satisfying pleasure. That's the good life. Or, you know, some sexual satisfaction. Or it's making a name for yourself, you know, in music, or in theater, or in film, or in politics, or in community recognition, or it's just giving back, or it's getting rich, or, you know, ease in life where you can just drink and not worry and eat, drink, and be merry and so forth. The good life. You know, I'll tell you, beloved, and we're going to see this next week, Solomon chased after all of that. And you know what? He concluded that none of it satisfied him. None of it made him fulfilled. You can read about it in Ecclesiastes 2. He had it all. I mean, have you realized this when you study the life of Solomon? He had no limitations. Imagine being that guy. No limitations. I mean, he literally, and he, you know, he writes about it. No limitations to what Solomon could have. He literally had all experiences, and he says that none of them satisfied him long term. You know that woman at the well. Have you have you thought about this? That that woman at the well, John chapter four, that woman at the well came satisfied. She came to that well perfectly content. Did you know that? Read it. She didn't come to the well because her life was miserable. She came to the well. Do you remember why she came there? To draw water. It's what you do at a well. She was just living her life. It was a normal day. It was a regular day for her. She wasn't looking to have a Jesus moment. Listen, she did not have... She didn't seem like she had problems on the outside. In fact... She wanted to serve Jesus. Remember that? This is all before Jesus showed her she had a problem. And she would have served Jesus if he had let her. But he didn't. Why? Because... Jesus didn't need a drink. She did. And she was saying to herself, well, that's why I'm here at the well. No. You came to this well for water that would perish. I have water that's living water. She needed the drink. She just didn't know what kind of drink she needed. She thought she was living the good life. Jesus said, he offered her living water so she could never thirst again, right? That's what Jesus did. He said, here's, I've got living water for you. She was thinking of water for her body. Jesus was offering her water for her soul. Finally, to help her see her need, Jesus said, Go call your husband. 
Let's meet him. She says, I don't have a husband. He said, yeah, I know. You're right. And the guy you're living with right now isn't your husband. She said, uh, oh, you're a prophet. <laughs> well, worse for you, I'm God in the flesh. No, a prophet hasn't come to visit you. God in the flesh has. Yikes. You think you're living the good life, but you can't even obey God in this area, and yet you think that you're okay to worship Him the way you worship Him. She finally got it, and she left her water pot and went back into the town to get the rest of the people to meet Jesus. See? See, Jesus wanted to show her, you don't have the good life like you think. It's not in sex or drugs or alcohol or your next promotion. In fact... Here's what Solomon had to say after getting all that life could give him. Ecclesiastes 2.17, mark it. So I hated life. Have you tried to suck all that there is out of life and have come to the conclusion that you actually hate it? You will. And, but, but then I have to say, and then What? Because if, if your then what doesn't lead you to Christ, the living water, then it doesn't matter for you. Solomon says, so I hate a life because everything is futility and striving after wind. Ever chase wind? I mean, what, what would you do if you caught it, right? What would you have? Nothing. would always catch nothing and that's the point now if there's one thing history has shown us is we have no shortage of examples of extremely unhappy rich people unsatisfied sex addicts indulgent and unfulfilled drunkards gamblers who risk so much to gain nothing and in many cases lose everything And I tell you what, this kind of led me this direction here. I was, I was reflecting, thinking about different people. I was curious. And you can you know, read the biographies of people that have ended their lives in suicide, people that had every amount of riches that you could ask for, from musicians and entertainers to politicians to poets to financiers. And so that kind of got, I wondered about Howard Hughes. You ever heard the story about Howard Hughes? If you do, pay attention to the time period of, of the years around 1958 to 1968. Now, I'm just going to give you a little disclaimer warning. If you do, you're going to find some weird and very disturbing things about that man. Oh, yes, he was involved in a lot of inventions. Oh, he had wealth that was so vast unmatched by anyone at, at his during his time. He died in 1976. 
But this guy was super strange and very empty, and it's a sad story. Here's a guy with more wealth than any man on earth could possibly have, and he didn't know how to handle being alone, and he did some of the strangest, sickest things alone. He had all kinds of OCD type of issues. There was this 10-year period where they, they, they just couldn't, they couldn't find him a lot of times. And when they did find him, he was just alone in front of some TV screen doing who knows what. People pursuing the good life. Not able to find it in thinking that it's in money or sex or fame. So let me ask this question. So why are why are so few people actually happy? Two reasons. One, they don't know the Jesus that Peter preached in one chapter one, verse eighteen to twenty. That could it could be that they don't know the Jesus that, 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 that Peter preached. Preach the Jesus whom for believers, though you have not seen him, you love him and you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Earlier in verse 8. Or second one. Maybe you are a believer. Maybe you know him. But for some reason, you don't live the good life that he gives. Maybe there's some sin that you're not willing to confess. Maybe there's some failure that keeps you from drinking in His grace. And you think that your failure is greater than His grace. Well, if you're in either place, 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12 is for you. And, you know, maybe you're at the place where actually you're saying, well, what about the people that know the Lord Jesus? And, you know, man, I'm enjoying Him. Well, you'll be reminded why you need to keep doing that right here in this section. You need to be reminded about the good life. Now go back to that verse, verse 10, and let's, let's try and break some something down here, and then we'll get into, uh, we're actually going to just look at one verse this morning. All right? But look at verse 10. The one who desires life, he says. There are two Greek words for life. Um, you have the word bios, and you have the word zoe. Okay? Uh, bios, B-I-O-S, from where we get biology from, or biosphere. And then Zoe, Z-O-E, the long dash over the E, Zoe. With bios, we, you know, the idea of that is is a physical life or life produced on this earth, a life you could say connected to impulses and physical feelings and so forth, and it's all the life that this body can give you, the pleasures that you get, that you can gain at this level, at the bios level. And that for so many people, so many people are living just biological life. For them, their great 
consuming passion is what they can get out of the bios. And then there's Zoe. This Greek word means, the idea of it is the spirit or the spiritual life. That is, uh, that's the life under the hood. Okay? That's the stuff that is connected to kind of the, the real you. Life from within, you could say. Invisible life. Soul life. Now that is Peter's word here. The one who desires soul life, true inner life, spiritual life at a high level, at a level next to God. See? True life, full life. And this is a very important evangelistic question that you could ask of someone and that I might ask of you, maybe who don't know the Lord, is it what is it that you love and desire? It says the one who desires life. What life is it that you're desiring? Are you desiring the bios? For you, is it just things that you can see, feel, and touch and all around you? Are you so consumed with trying to make this life everything it can be, where the finances are exactly as it needs to be, and the yard is as it needs to be, and maybe whatever thing is attached to you practically and physically? Or have you come to the place where you desire real life, true life, inner life, life that matters, life that goes beyond you and the practical and begins to touch other people, but more important, extends forever. We call it eternal life. And then you have here the phrase here in verse 10, to love and see good days. The the word for love is agapao. This is the love of will. Or you could call this self-giving love. It's the strongest word for love. It is a pure and strong willing love for the goodness that life can give you. Life lived the way the Lord wanted it. I mean, sometimes we forget that when God made all of this stuff and said in, and he, that He said in Genesis 1, it's good. And He called it good. Read it for yourself. Every day, He was, our, our Lord was captured with good. That He wanted to make that statement each day. It was good. There's goodness in this life. And I'll tell you, the Lord would have us get all we can out of it. Now let me be careful and clear. Not in a self-indulgent way. I'm not talking about that. But in the way that... He meant it to be. And you can read passages like Proverbs 3 and see the Lord desires us to live life that way. 
not in the way, and this is the thing that disturbs, that is so disturbing about the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers out there that are trying to get you and I to think we're doing well with the Lord when we have lots of riches. We're not doing well when there are no riches and he's not blessing us. You're misunderstanding what it means to be blessed. No, this kind of living and enjoying of life is the kind that whatever it is that you have, you can have joy that's through the roof. You don't need your barns to be filled more to have this kind of joy. John 10, verse 10, this is the life abundantly that Jesus talked about. You say, well, why does Peter need to write them about this? Well, think about this. How many times does he tell us that they're suffering? That's a theme, isn't it, for this whole epistle? About how much suffering they're facing, and oftentimes they're facing suffering, and they didn't even do anything wrong. That's why he says, don't let, you, don't let yourself suffer as a wrongdoer. And one of the reasons why is because then you can be really clear about God's sovereign, providential hand that is happening, that is allowing you to experience suffering so that he might connect you to the good days. And then you can understand, ah, I can even experience the good life in my suffering. That's radical. Every chapter he talks about their suffering. What is the temptation when you are constantly in every chapter kind of suffering life? Well, it's to say life stinks, right? It's to say, I don't love this. I mean, I just need to get through it. I I just need to clench my teeth and pray for it to end someday and just pray, take me home, Lord. I mean, well, did it ever dawn on you that he wants you to enjoy the good life even here on this earth, even in whatever suffering that you're going through? Don't get carried away and think this is heaven now. But... I mean, because it gets better. (laughs) But it is his will for you and I to see good days in this life. Peter writes to a battered group of Christians and basically says in this section, don't give up, and here's why. So in the face of suffering in this life, how do you and I see good days and experience the good life? Four ways we get way number one here this morning. the right approach. You have to have the right approach. And we're going to learn about the right approach this morning. Verse 8, as it says there in your notes, it starts with attitude. Verse 8, look at it. It has no verb. It's a very fascinating verse here. And I love it when you know, the authors just kind of throw stuff out there with no verb. It's, the reason why I love it is because it's almost like a, like a uh, okay, you know, I've got to put on my interpretive Inspector Clouseau hat and try to figure this out. Like, okay, I've got to find out, A, why did you not put a verb in there? B, what verb were you wanting me to kind of fill in the blanks with? 
And oftentimes it's a bee verb. And that's what it is here. And so the bee verb is assumed. He's basically saying, be these things. Peter just piles on five participles. And so that's our outline. You're going to notice that the right approach comes out in five with five aspects to it. Now, as you look at this list, notice it's not about having stuff. We talk about the good life. It's not about having stuff. It's not about what you possess. That's not what makes life enjoyable. It's not about having all your problems go away. No, no, no. It's about your attitude. It's about your attitude and your approach to life. I have witnessed many a man or woman face, as a believer, face some of the most severe sufferings. And because they have a right approach, you'd almost never know it. You'd almost never realize it. Because they have a right approach. It's about your attitude. Now, five things that matter in life, and if you approach life this way, that you will be ready for whatever is thrown at you. See. Now, as we get to these five points, notice how Peter starts. He says, to sum up. Literally, it says, and now the end. <laughs> and now the end. You know, it's the word, the Greek word telos, T-E-L-O-S. Um, on the cross, when Jesus was dying, he, and he, remember when he said, it is finished, uh, to tell a child that that, that that word is from this word, telos. It's, it means to come to a completion, to come to an end of something. And so this is Peter saying, okay, I'm bringing this to an end, to the conclusion. You say, but wait a minute, we're just starting chapter 3, and he's got chapter 4, and he's got chapter 5. Is, is like chapter 4 and 5 and 3 just a long conclusion? No. So what is he ending here then? What is the conclusion to? That's what we have to figure out. I believe it is a conclusion to what he started back in chapter 2 verse 11. You remember that? Remember that point? You say, what point was he making? Well, he says there, your fleshly lusts are waging war against you. You've got to fight them. Why? Verse 12, to keep your behavior godly before unbelievers. And so you need to live like strangers. You need to live like citizens. You need to live like servants. And we talked about that. And then in, in telling us all that, he said, you've got to keep your, God, your behavior godly before unbelievers. He said, why? So God can use your life to save them and become people that glorify God in the day of visitation. We learned that already. What is the day of visitation? Two ways to understand it. It could be the day when he visits them in salvation. And I think that's very likely of what he means. But there could be a second shade to this, and that is a day of judgment. And if that's what he has in mind, what he means is that these unbelievers will become Christians, and then at that day of judgment, they'll glorify God 
They'll glorify God because He visited them it's with salvation. So either way, your life matters. Either way, the point that he's making is how you live it becomes a part of the evangelism that the Lord uses right here in this community. How are we to live then? Christ-like lives. We are to live like Christ. Romans 8.29 Peter says, There are three areas where it's critical to proclaim the excellencies of Christ with your life. Now, he told us this already, right? Remember, this is just review. First, before governing authorities. Now, that's the largest circle of people that you're going to be around, the governing authorities, okay? And by the way, that includes your community. So you might say, you might look at that in terms of your life around Fallon. Second, in your workplace. Now that brings it down a little bit smaller. And so it is to demonstrate that you know and love Christ in your workplace. And this is you having to patiently endure whatever happens at the workplace. And how you endure it becomes then a testimony of His grace. And then thirdly, before your family. And in each area, there's resistance to the Christ-like life. You have unsaved people that don't get how you live, and these unsaved people need to be won over. They need Christ. That is our mission. Win people to Christ. That's why that word is used in chapter 3, at the very beginning, when it talks about the the believing wife winning over her unsaved husband. And how she does that. And then the husband with the wife. Godly living. You proclaim Christ with your lips and your life. Now you get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, as I said, and you have the wife with the unbelieving husband, and then the husband with the unbelieving wife, and you just keep on showing them Jesus Christ, even in the harshest situations. Keep showing Christ. And then, so then in chapter 3, verse 8, Peter says, okay, let me sum this up. Let me just give you a sort of bottom line on it all. Notice, by the way, who he's talking to. He says, to sum up, all of you. In other words, it doesn't matter which circle you're in. Whatever we're talking about, everybody. He says, this applies to all the circles. If we are to enjoy the good life... To live that out in the circles that we are in, even though you also suffer there, if you want to make these good days, it starts with your approach. It begins with your attitude. And it is your attitude toward everyone. Your attitude toward everyone. It doesn't matter, believer, unbeliever, 
Notice he doesn't make that distinction now. It's just your attitude towards whoever. See, all right, what do do we need to focus on? Five aspects that must govern your attitude that you need to give attention to in order to live and love the good days. And it's fascinating in this section. There are five words that I told you about, but what's fascinating is that four of them are words that Peter just made up. I love that about Peter. I would, that's what I, that's my, that's my boy right there. He just, you know, he's not making things up in terms of not being true. He's just saying, listen, these words work for me. I'm going to put this together. And it's almost like he's playing with, you know, Legos or something like that. Because he goes, here's a word, here's a word, that's my word right there. Boop, put them together. Literally. So, you're not going to find them anywhere in the New Testament but here. But his points are clear. And again, is this an attitude toward believers or unbelievers? Both. The answer is both. This is how you should approach any relationship you have with any person. So let's see the first one, and and let's call it like-mindedness. It is an attitude of harmony. Verse 8, he says, be harmonious. Be harmonious. Ooh, we were just uh, working uh, in warm-up with our band is we were just kind of trying to figure things out and everything and one of the things we were working on is figuring out the harmony in there and that's where you have a melody and you put other parts that kind of go with it that kind of can blend right can complement harmonious now peter uses two words to make one word here so let's, let's give you this here. The, the, the root in Greek is phronēs, P-H-R-O-N-E-S. Phronēs. And phronēs means to use the mind, to, to think. It is the word that you would use when a person is processing something. And if it helps, phronēs sounds like frontal lobe. And so to use the frontal lobe... You know, we might say, use your brain, right? Think. Okay? That's the idea here a little bit with this word. But Peter attaches a second word to make one word, and it is the Greek word homo. And homo means the same, of the same. Put them together. Think. Of the same. Put, uh, be, be thinking together on this. Do what you can do to be on the same page with that person. And always look to, to be on the same page with that person. You can even say it this way. Be thinking together on this. See, what's what you're saying? Seek to be of the same mind as other people. You say, wait a minute. What about discernment? I said that same thing too. 
But I want you to think of it this way. Peter isn't saying that we need to shut off good thoughts or that we should be open to joining people in their bad or wrong thinking. He's just saying where you can be on the same page, get on that same page. Maybe to say it a different way. Stop trying to always be contrarian. You know who you are. Right? Oh, I just want to go to the other side. I'm a contrarian, I'm a contrarian person. Stop it. You'll never find the good life that way. What he is saying is our approach in general to life should be unity, should be keeping things together, not trying to break things apart. Now again, there's a time when a person persists in living or thinking against the truth. Well, at that point we need to separate, right? That's what Jesus meant when he said, I've come to bring a sword and division. When you reach that point where they just will not have anything to do with the truth, then you separate. But in general, we seek peace, not a fight. We're not about disrupting things. You know, rocking the boat just to get things going the other direction. Just read scripture and you'll see when God saves a person, He places us in the flow of unity all the time. The only times we reject unity is when there's a sinful thought raised up against the knowledge of God, 2 Corinthians 10. And then it says we destroy it. Listen, it's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, that they may be all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Our unity with each other as believers then becomes a statement to the world about the truth about Jesus Christ. It shouldn't be that somebody says, sees you coming from down the road, oh, here comes so-and-so, they're just going to take the other side. They never want to agree with anything. That's not us as believers. Verse 23, John 17, perfected in unity. Acts 2 and Acts 4, having all things in common. Romans 12, 16, be of the same mind toward one another. 1 Corinthians 1, 10, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you and that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Philippians 1, 27, with one mind striving for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 2, the same mind maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then we can't forget Ephesians 4, 3. One of my favorites, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, right? It's something, by the way, by the way, he doesn't say you will never find uh, the Lord calling us to go create unity. He never says that. He says preserve it. In other words, if you are in Christ, you are in unity. Unity with Him and unity with one another. 
Just preserve it. Make sure you keep it going. And you say, well, you know, sometimes you hear people say, well, uh, you know, I, in fact, I, I remember one person asking me, well, is it a uh, spirit-led church that you're a part of? I said, well, let's see. We have Christians. The spirit is the spirit of truth. We preach the truth. Yep. Yep, it is. It is. Pretty sure I think I know what you're asking, but I'm just, with your words, yes, it is a spirit, Holy Spirit church. He is a spirit of truth. So when it says to preserve the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace, he clearly means we always stand on the truth. And it is something we always preserve. Now you, again, you can't preserve something unless you have something. And that means when God saved us, he placed us right into unity. I mean, it's something we have. That's, that's why I say that's our natural flow now. We just need to preserve it. I mean, I, I, we ought to, it ought to be that we come into a room and it is a given for us as believers that we're going to seek to be on the page, same page with that, whoever that other person is. Unless they don't walk with the truth or they're trying to get us to not walk with the truth. That's our direction. We're not going to go around trying to create conflict. Now, I mean... You stand on the truth, there's going to be conflict, right? But we're not trying to make waves. We're trying to make peace. In fact, even with that truth, we're trying to make peace, aren't we? Now that's why it is always difficult for me when I see two supposed Christian groups in conflict. That's difficult. Is it difficult for you? See, you think, why? what is the problem here? I mean, over the years, things like the Crusades or things like the Irish, Catholic, and Protestant wars, what are we doing? That is not Christianity. That is not biblical Christianity. We are harmonious. And now whether we are in the context of governing authorities or the workplace or our marriage, we seek to squeeze out conflict and preserve any unity we can inside it. I'm going to agree wherever I can agree with another person. You stand on the truth and the Lord will show you where you need to separate. But as far as it depends on you, be at what? Be at peace, right? Be in harmony, be in step. So that's the first word. There's a second word in verse 8. Look at it. The good life, be like-minded with others. Secondly, be like-passioned. Be like-passioned with others. Peter says sympathetic in the NAS. The King James Version says having compassion. The Greek word here is sympathes. Sounds like sympathetic, right? Again, two words here, pathos, from which we get our word for passions from. 
what it is that you feel on the inside. The word can also mean to suffer. And then you have the word sum, which means with. To suffer with another person. You come along and you choose to feel what they feel, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Romans 12 You know, sometimes we say, I feel you. (laughs) We're trying to get down to that person at the feelings level, aren't we, when we say that? Now again, this extends beyond the church. We're to be this way with all people, see? And I'll tell you, beloved, if there's anyone who can understand the depravity of man, shouldn't it be us? I mean, shouldn't we be the ones, have you forgotten about the fallenness of man? Shouldn't we get the fallenness of man? And by the way, Jesus really showed us the way of this. John chapter 11, Jesus goes right to that tomb where Lazarus is in and he's about to raise him up. But before he does does that, he does something. Verse 35 tells us what he does. Jesus wept. I mean, and I believe that when he, when he wept, he felt the wreckage of sin done to Lazarus. He was actually feeling it. Why do we sometimes... I mean, why do we act sometimes so above the sin and struggles of another person? It's amazing to me. I, me too. I think when I take a step back, I go, why are you so amazing? As though you've never sinned? Or you've never sinned the way that person has sinned? Maybe so, but can you not relate in any way? Hebrews 2.16 Assuredly, Jesus does not give help to angels, but he gives, gives help to the descendant of Abraham. How? How does Jesus help us? Verse 17 He had to be made like his brethren in all things. Verse 18 For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He says, Hey, I spent 33 years suffering from temptation. Always having to say no to it. So I understand you who are now trying to say no to it. See, Or how about Hebrews 4.15? We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So the point, this is the point about being soft, about being sensitive to others. Oh man, we, we can get so critical so quickly. We're all finger-waggers, right? I mean, we are, we are quick to fold arms and act so disappointed at people and at their sins, that are in their sins, but not our Lord. He sympathized. I mean, he came down to feel us. John MacArthur quotes a Scottish author who said, quote, Moses, the greater man than Aaron, was not called to be high priest. Why? Because he had grown up in the palace. He had never felt the lash of the taskmaster, the blast of the brick kilns, the raw-fingered agony of unrequited toil. He couldn't be touched with the feelings of their infirmities. But Aaron could. He was there. 
We may pity from above, he says, but we can sympathize from beside. End quote. That's the good life, beloved. Sympathizing from beside that person. By the way, you think people might be willing to hear the truth we have to give if they know we are willing to feel their hurts and pains and struggles? They might. Maybe a little more. It's that old saying, people won't care to know until they know you care. They're not going to care what you know until they know that you care. So what you have in so many marriages are unfeeling people who are saying, well, he just doesn't do it for me anymore. Or she just has so many issues. Well, I mean, I don't know if you were warned before or somewhere during it, you married a sinner, right? And there's a chance that you might be one of those two. This is just a summary point for Peter. This is how you reach the good life in that difficult marriage of chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Let's see a third word here. Verse 8, brotherly. The Greek here is philadelphos. Literally, love of the brotherhood. I like this one. Brother love. That's literally what the word is. Brother love. Sister love. He's talking about affection. I think to get this, we have to think about what the opposite would be. What would the opposite be? It's to be a stranger to people, right? By the way, we're really good at that. You know, just show up and take the warmth out of you. Just show up somewhere and just get distant. I should have said, warning... I'm about to offend a lot of people here, okay? Just get around people and just think of yourself. You do that and you'll be a good stranger. Protect yourself. Take no risks. Treat that person that you're around like they're a stranger. And in some cases, we treat people like they're intruders. Beloved, we are to see others like brothers, like sisters. Now, it's at a deeper level for Christians, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, there are some people that are friends of mine that are not Christians. And they'll call me brother. And and I, I always feel weird. And I think, ah, but you're not my brother. I mean, you know. But on the other hand, according to First Peter, there's a brother love that I need to show that person. So you know what? Okay. You can be bro. Means to be brotherly. It means more in the circle. It means more inside the body. But to be brotherly is to be entering into that person's joy in such a way where you are unselfish and loving and willing to be connected to them like family. I mean, isn't that what we learned 
First Peter 1, 22-25, when he saved us and placed us into a love of brothers that, with a fervent love. Love that's, that's hot from the heart. I like that. Love with heat. So how do you describe a Christian? How, what should Christians be like? Love with heat. You know what it should be like? When we see each other, we should say, hey, listen. I just spent the last hour on the stove warming it up for you. Okay? This love is burning hot, right? I'm here to really be a brother to you. So here we go, right? You know, the time before, the period before, you know, that's why you're in the Word. That's why you pray, right? Heating it up. We who have true love should be open to share it. I mean, now, even now during the Christmas season, got to be, I mean, we live in a loveless world, beloved. We really live, live in a loveless world. And you'll see it even now during the Christmas season where you got all these people and, um, you know, don't be fooled by people's smiles and hugs. Many of them are without true love. And we who have it should be open to share it. See, how do you do it? Serve. Extend. Be like Jesus who sacrificed and gave all. I love the pictures of the love of Christ in places like Luke 7 where it says that that woman who is a sinner, probably sexual sin, she wipes Jesus' feet with her tears and is touching him. And you have Simon judging Jesus saying, if this man knew what kind of a woman this was, and here's Jesus and he knows exactly what kind of a woman she was and he doesn't care. He loves her. And so love looks like that. Willing to be around people that others wouldn't be around. Just brotherly. See? And so Peter says the conclusion to being people who can win others to Christ is this. Be like-minded. Be like passion. Be brotherly. Fourth, be pitiful. So What? Explain. To be pitiful means to be full of pity. It is to be full of mercy. Look at verse 8 again. Kind hearted, the NAS says. This is an amazing word. In the Greek, it's eusplanknos. And yes, he put two words together. This is good old Peter. Kind of, you know. The first. The, you need to look at is the, the root, uh, splanknos, it, 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 it's where we get our word for intestines from, okay? The guts, the bowels, you know? In a sense, Peter is saying, you got to love them with your guts, you know? It's, it is literally what he's saying. I mean, deep where it hurts. The intestines are the place of sensitivity, actually, literally, physically. You got all the nerves that are in there, the stomach area, and Sometimes we can say, we call them sometimes when something is wrong and we have no idea what's going down south, we just call it a tummy ache, right? Say, so what do you got? I got a tummy ache. Not sure what's going on down there, right? But that's because there's so much feeling down there. That's why they use this word. 
So much sensitivity. And then Peter adds this word, E-U, you. And it means wellness or goodness. And so what he's saying is, you and I need to be good at feeling what they feel. To have wellness toward their pain. This is the love of feeling, the deepest human emotion. You say, well, what's the difference between sympathos, like we already looked at, and this one? Well, we might call this empathy. To actually feel what they feel. Now, when you try to do something because you're trying to help them, that's sympathy. Empathy is love that is actually By the way, Paul uses a a similar word in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. So this one is compassion at a deep level. I guess if you're trying to see a distinction, sympathy is Jesus loving the woman who was hemorrhaging, and, you know, she touched his robe and he healed her. That's sympathy. It's Jesus in Matthew 9 saying he felt for the people because they were like lost sheep in need of a shepherd. It's it's Jesus seeing the 5,000 without food and saying we should feed them. But this word would be Jesus weeping for Lazarus. Feeling it makes you raise the guy up from the dead, see. So it's feeling that moves your feet. Let's add a fifth word from Peter, verse 8. Boy, we could be so unfeeling, can't we, towards people? Let's call this one be humble. You just got to be humble. He says, humble in spirit. And this is one word in the Greek, and in Can there be a greater example than Jesus in Philippians 2? The greatest example of our humility when Jesus came down. True humility condescends, comes down to that person. It comes down and disrobes advantage and clothes the apron. It's John 13 when Jesus stooped to wash their feet, especially Peter's feet. Now listen, Peter never forgot that lesson from Jesus. That's why this is here. Jesus told Peter, if I do not do this for you, then you will have no part with me. In other words, if you don't learn that humility is what it means to be my follower, then you're not my follower. That's what he was telling Peter. If you don't understand this is what it is to be a Christian, then you're not one of those. And you know what Peter said? Well, I got the message here. Then wash all of me. And Jesus said, ah, you don't only need your feet. That's good. 
Paul spells it out in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Can you imagine if our society and culture and community and marriages saw this kind of approach to life? I mean, life is hitting us hard and there's insult and resistance and suffering and our response is seeking to be on the same page with that person, being like passion, being bringing a brother love to the table and being pitiful, that is showing mercy and feeling what it is that they feel and, and being humble. I think that would change things. They would wonder... Who are these guys? What are these people about? What makes them live like this? All right, let's bring this to a conclusion here. Let's ask the question, how do we do it? What keeps us motivated to be like this? We keep a picture of our motivation before us at all times. We do. People have pictures of what motivates them all the time. Some of you maybe have you printed on T-shirts, right? Little statements or some picture of something. Maybe it's something posted on a wall or painted in, in frame. Well, we have a picture as Christians of what motivates us to be what 1 Peter 3.8 says. And it is the very life of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived out all of these five aspects in perfection. He was the greatest peacemaker. He was the greatest sympathizer, the greatest in humility, the greatest in identifying with people. He was the greatest at loving others, the greatest at feeling what people felt, the greatest mercy giver. I mean, remember little Zacchaeus? He, he was the greatest at being gentle and meek and kind and children loved being around him and the lame and the sinners and the poor and even people like Nicodemus who was noble and rich and a big shot teacher but was broken by his sin and he even felt like he could come to Jesus. Jesus is our picture of 1 Peter 3.8. So we... Read our Bibles to keep the picture of Jesus before us so that we might imitate Him. Beloved, that's our approach. It's what gets us the good life, but we have three other points. So we're just getting started. So let me ask this question. What about you? Where do you see yourself? I mean, do you maybe have the wrong approach to life? You have an opportunity this morning to turn it around. I mean, this, this could be the best year of your life. You could be seeking some serious good days this year. This is the good life coming up. And I tell you, it's going to take that kind of approach in order for that to be. I'm up for it. I hope you are too. Let's pray for it, huh? Your Father, we just love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us so much, always more than what we can get for ourselves. We thank you for Christ. And we pray, Lord, you would help us to understand this approach. 
this attitude that we need to have in living. And uh, help us, Lord, to live this way. We love you, Lord, and we realize that all of us have different contexts of life that we've been put in. But you are the same Lord to every person. And so I pray you would help us to be a people that are connected at that level, that deep level, and knowing you this way. Will you do this work in our lives? Help us to keep the picture of Christ always before us by reading your word, Lord. And as we're enamored with you, may it not just be some one, something that we're enamored about you and then we go away like James 1 says and forgets, but that we seek to apply. And we can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask you, will you make something that was said, something that's here in First Peter 3, 8, connect to our personal lives so that we would be like Christ this way. Pray for this in Jesus' name.